Well, good morning, everybody. You can go ahead and take a seat, and the kids can uh, go back, if they haven't already, back with, with Pastor Becky and friends for our godly play, our children's ministry. So uh, thanks so much for, for joining us today. I hope that um, whoever you rooted for in that Super Bowl um, won, or if you just watched the commercials or ate lots of junk food, then that's okay, too. Um, as in our, our weather here kind of been up and down too, but I, I don't know about you, I'm ready for spring. I'm done with this like 17 degrees in the morning type thing. Snow, right? Yesterday we had a bunch of snow here, uh, kind of squall that went through in, in Pennsylvania. So um, I also want to welcome everybody online too. Just give a shout out to everybody that's worshiping online from, from home, from work. Hopefully, I don't know, from work maybe. Maybe you're at work, but that's okay too. We're glad you're here with us. Um, and, um, and also, hopefully you received one of these uh, bulletin on your way in. If you did, if you want to take that out and you're kind of the follow-along type, taking notes type, also for you guys online, it's also on our website. You can just click a link there, download that, print that, whatever you would like to do. And the scripture's all there, so if you want to refer back and read it again or say, did she really say that, right? Check out for yourself. That's okay, too. So, um, so I want to start off today with a question for you. Um, that'll kind of get into our message. Uh, but what is the weirdest thing you have ever heard someone leave behind? Leave behind. I'm talking about when they went on to be with Jesus. Something that they left to someone, maybe in a will or was thinking ahead to somebody. Well, I'm going to share with you a couple of the weirdest ones if something doesn't come to your mind. Um, so there was this guy that passed away that um, had a drawer full of lottery tickets left to his wife. And would you believe it? They were all winning lottery tickets. Never told her about his little lottery fetish there, but uh, about $9,000 worth of winning lottery tickets that had never been cashed in. And I guess the rules, I forget what state this is, but the rules were that like, you, know, you have a certain amount of time to do that. It was within the duration. Um, so he was thinking ahead, right? What about this? This is a kind of weird one. Um, I'm going to put that next picture up there. Hair, locks of hair. Kind of gross, right? Uh, guess who left this behind when he passed on? Napoleon. Yes, these were gifts, believe it or not. At the time, that's what you did. You left your hair behind. He gave them to some of the people that he served with in the army as wonderful gifts to be reminded of. So if you're thinking ahead, you know, just a little snip, snip right there, right? Um, this one's a little bit strange as well. Like I said, these are all weird ones. A cat mansion. All our cat friends here left behind a mansion that he dedicated to his cats. And they had little rooms for, I think, eating and sleeping and playing and all sorts of stuff. I guess if you have money, you don't know what to do with it. You leave it to your cats, right? And this one is the best, I think. Um, this guy named Norman Ernest Digweed in 1897 left $35,000 to Jesus when he returns. Because Jesus really needs $35,000, right? And he had a warning with that, that it had to, in order to go to Jesus when he returned, Jesus would have to prove it to him. Or Jesus would have to prove it to somebody that was behind. So he had a kind of game plan here, but I don't know about you, I'm not sure if Jesus really would be 
maybe he would say thank you. I guess he would be very thankful for that. Um, but these are just kind of some things, maybe you've heard of others that, you know, kind of strange things, maybe in your own life that you're like, oh, well, that's interesting that she left that or he left that, right? But um, we're going to talk about legacy today. And, um, and, and not just the things that, physical things that we leave behind, um, because we usually do think of things, or we think of super, super important people that have great big accomplishments in the world and society, and those things kind of continue or are passed on. Um, usually when we think of legacy, we think about some of those things. But I want to ask the question today, what if that's good stuff, but not necessarily the case? What if the most powerful legacy of someone's life is actually the story they leave behind? What if it's not about stuff or even these big, giant accomplishments? But what if the most powerful thing that you and I can leave behind is the story the story of our lives. Because when you think about it, if you've been to a funeral or memorial service, nobody really brings the stuff to the coffin, right? <laughs> nobody tracks up all and has all someone's diplomas and certificates and the money that they have or pictures of their yacht or their cars. They usually tell stories, right? We usually tell stories of that person, things that have impacted us or stood out to us. And what's interesting about stories is, is they come out of events, right? Events in our lives. Um, and usually while the event is happening, while it's taking place, you don't usually think of it as eventually becoming a story you're going to tell sometime in the future. But that's where they come from, right? Is that events eventually at some point, maybe a couple minutes, hours, days, whatever it is, at some point turn into stories that we wind up telling and sharing. And, and so I want to ask the question, say, I, I wonder, how would it change the direction of our decisions, our dreams, our actions, our investments, our relationships, uh, and how we use our time and energy? How would it change those things if we simply asked the question, what story do we want to be told years from now? What story? And, and so we're going to talk about that today uh, on a personal level, talking about these dreams, but, but also as a church, too. I'm going to share with you a little bit as a church about what do we want to be known for? I don't know. It's a great question because uh, today we're in part seven of our series, Start Dreaming Again, and it's going to wrap up next week. Next week we'll conclude this. And we've been talking about kind of the big idea of this series has been how God is a God of God-sized dreams, and nothing can stop God from fulfilling those dreams. And I think that it connects with you and I, and I've talked to, to many, many people here, also some people have emailed me, uh, about how kind of the last two years of our lives, haven't they been like about survival, right? Just like getting by, getting through, kind of like waiting till the end of, of COVID and this thing that's been going on. And so we've been talking about how it's time to start dreaming again. So I'm going to start dreaming again. And not just dreams like for me that's going to better me, but dreams that God wants us to dream. 
And so uh, we're nearing the end of the story that we've been tracking with through this time, uh, talking about Joseph in the Old Testament scriptures in the book of Genesis. Joseph's story, very fascinating, takes place um, maybe about 1,500 years or so before Jesus arrives. And, and we see at the beginning of the story, this is just a little summary here, about how God gave these dreams to Joseph when he was a teenager, and his brothers didn't like that because he was telling them about how this one dream or these two dreams showed about how he was going to be in this leadership and that eventually they were going to bow down to him and they didn't like him to begin with so they throw him in a well and sell him into slavery and he gets taken to Egypt and has all these trials one after another after another lots of pain but through all those circumstances eventually he's promoted he's promoted he's promoted to a being second in command for Pharaoh for the leader of Egypt and his and Pharaoh has a series of dreams at that time that Joseph helps interpret one that shares about how there were going to be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine and lo and behold this takes place but Joseph because he's been put in this second-in-command leadership he's helped the Egyptian people get ready remember built the Costco's got Costco's stocked up ready for the famine everybody and your grandmother comes to Egypt to get food because they hadn't prepared, they hadn't known about it, they don't have the Costco's. And of those people that come to Egypt are Joseph's brothers, Joseph's brothers. And because of that, because of that, they have this reuniting that happens. There's a series of tests that Joseph uh, go, makes them go through. You can listen to last couple weeks' message about that. But eventually, they, they reunite. And this family we talked about last week starts over in Egypt. All the brothers go back to their dad who didn't know that Joseph was still alive and they share the news and he's like, oh my gosh, this is crazy, this is stuff. And then God tells Jacob, the father, that he needs to bring his whole family to Egypt and that's what they do. And so the family moves to this area in Egypt called Goshen, called Goshen. Anybody know where Goshen is? If you did, I would be really fast. Oh, yeah, we have one hand over here. Awesome. Thank you, Mike Border. Salute to you. But even if you don't care where Goshen is or don't know where it is, it's basically a place in Egypt where these people could live out their faith and worship their God. And so in this, this land, I want to start off this story because we're getting to the end at this point of the father of Jacob's life. Uh, it's at the end of his life, and of course, at the end of his life, as what happens with a lot of us, we start reflecting. We start reflecting on the things that, that we did, the things that we didn't do. Uh, we look back on the years that we've had, and of course, there's of course the, right, the good old days. The good old days, everything's glossy, but then there's the not-so-good days, right? The bad old days, Remember kind of both of them at the same time, and that's what he's doing here. But I think as he's nearing his final days, I think what comes to the surface is his legacy. His legacy. Uh, he's, he's been asking the question, you know, what story do I want to leave behind? What story is most important? And I think there's a couple things that are shown in the scripture as it's told here in, in Genesis 37. Um, First, uh, about how it's a story that looks at the long game. About how it's a story that looks at the long game. 
That's, that's, what jo- that's what Jacob is focusing on because God is always about the long game. And, and I think that's what those of us who call ourselves Christians, who are followers of Christ, that's what people of faith hold on to. That we know what's in front of us, the circumstances, what we face in the immediate. It, it's all part of a bigger story. There's something bigger that's going on at the same time. And, and so it, there's this perspective change. It shapes what you do now. It shame, shapes how you act. And so Genesis, I'm sorry, it's, it should be 47. Um, Genesis chapter 47, verse 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. And that's what is told. So let me just pause here. This is not about prosperity, but about the promise. It's a promise. Because long, long time ago, if you rewind in the story, all the way back, we see that there's a story about Abraham Father Abraham, maybe you learned the little thing. I don't, I, I don't know it. Somebody taught it to me a while ago. I didn't grow up going into all that, all that kind of like kids' church things. Um, but Father Abraham, he was told by God that there were going to be ancestors of his that were numerous as the stars. And of course, Abraham had such a hard time thinking about that because he didn't have a child at the time to pass on to. But eventually, God is in the long game, right? He, it takes place. But then that promise is repeated to Jacob, is repeated to Joseph's father in, verse thir- in chapter 35, which says, Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and community of nations will come to you, and kings will be your descendants. Actually, this is happening. It's a fulfillment of God's promise. Because when you think about promises, you know, you and I in our lives, promises are only as good as the people who make them, Right? probably as good as the people who make them. So first, think for a second of someone, someone who says that you know you can trust, who makes a promise and they keep it. They say they're going to be there tomorrow at 10 o'clock. They're going to be there. They're going to show up. Uh, you, can, you can tell by their history. You can tell by their time. Someone that's trustworthy, right? They make you a promise and you know that you can count on it no matter what. But then we also have people in our lives that are kind of the opposite of that, Right? People, the other person, and don't look at them right now, but um, the other person that makes a promise, they're going to be there, they're going to do it, and then what do you do, right? You get the text message, sorry, it's not going to work out, I can't do it, right? And, or, and it's kind of like time and time again, and you learn your lesson, um, because whenever their lips are moving, you know they're lying, right? Who was that uh, Megan Trainer quote right here? Um, but but the, the thing is, like, there's always going to be those kinds of people, but God God fits in that first category, even to a bigger extent, because God keeps his promises. The thing we have to keep in mind, though, is his time frame is usually a lot longer. His time frame is usually a lot longer than what we would like. And so the chapter continues with the story of Israel, also known as Jacob. And so Genesis tells us, when the time drew near for Israel to die, Jacob to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. And Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. 
significant here. First, Joseph is told by his father that he doesn't want a big funeral. He doesn't want a big funeral because why? He says, when we leave here, when you leave here, carry me back. When you leave here, meaning you all are not going to stay in Egypt. This is part of the long game. God has made a promise. He's fulfilling this promise. Jacob himself is not going to see the fulfillment of that promise. But, but there is going to be a movement into that fulfillment. There's going to be a story where these people have their own land. But at this point in the story, there's no nation of Israel. There's no promised land. That's, that's a lot, lot later. But God's dream is still taking place. God's dream is still taking place. And, and so Jacob, he's trying to tell Joseph, live in the long game here, Joseph. Like there's a longer story here than us just going to Egypt and now having food and being rescued. There's a bigger plan that's taking place. And, and so I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves. You know, it's, are the decisions that I'm making right now, is the story I'm writing, are the dreams that I'm chasing, are they based on the short game or the long game? Not just for me, but for maybe my family, for, for my children, for, for my community, for my church. You know, is it about the short game or the long game? You know, how have you seen God's faithfulness in the past, that promise being fulfilled? Can you at least hold on to that for now instead of acting on how you feel in the moment? And let me say this, it's never too late. It's never too late. Even if you're, say, you know, in the fourth quarter of life, it's never too late to act on the long game, to tell a story that's based on the long game. And we see that when, with Jacob as he emphasizes that. But then we have, enter into chapter 48 in the story. And, and so Jacob is still, he's still hanging on here. And so scripture tells us, sometime later Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there, there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I'll make you a community of peoples, and I'll give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. What is he doing here? He's passing on that reminder. He's passing on a reminder. Don't, don't we need reminders? I need lots of reminders. Becca, our office administrator, will tell you that. I need lots and lots of reminders. I have like sticky notes. I have things in my phone that beep at certain times. I have a calendar. I have like a paper calendar, believe it or not. And I have to remind myself time and time again. You know, don't we all need some kind of reminders? Uh, we need reminders of that long game. And that's what's taking place here. Uh, you know, that's, what, that's why we do this. That's why we have, have teaching and preaching in church. Because most of what I'm sharing is not revelation to you, and it's not really new news. But you need a reminder of it. I know I do. When I read the Bible, like I've read it many, many times before, but I need a reminder because I forget every single day. We're creatures of habit. We're creatures who are very forgetful. But also notice this in the story. Notice who Joseph has brought with him. Very interesting. He's brought his two sons, and, and specific sons that we'll get to in a minute. So continues in verse 5 and 6. Now then, this is Jacob talking, now then your two sons born to you in Egypt, 
You can emphasize that, underline that. Born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. I think the second thing that Jacob's story shows us is that we desire a legacy that looks outside ourselves. A legacy that looks outside ourselves. And, and this is a, a great picture of what God is doing in this part of the story. It's a great picture of where God is headed, even in, in the fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Because inheritance was everything to people in this culture. It was all about inheritance. There's so many stories in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, about inheritance, about what you're going to be passing on, about fights that would happen over that, what was going to take place. Story of the prodigal son, great example, right? Um, but Jacob, Jacob, he elevates the position, get this, this is crazy, he elevates the position of his grandsons to the positions of sons that would get his inheritance. This was unheard of at the time. Like, you didn't do this. Like, he has enough, it's not like he doesn't have any sons, right? He has a whole bunch. He has a lot more than, than most of us do. But he's making these grandsons equal to the two oldest sons, He's rewriting his will for this new family that's beginning to form, that's including people not just of one background, but remember, they're Egyptian. They're half Egyptian here. You know, they, they walk like the Egyptian. They talk like the Egyptian. You know, we have to keep, keep going back there. But, but think about that. That's, that's crazy. I mean, if you, if you go in your Bible, there's usually like this little map there that you can flip through and you can kind of see it's my, at the back of mine, right here. It usually looks something like this. Um, and if you look, try to look for it, look for the land of Joseph in the story. This is what happens. The 12 tribes of Israel all get their own little land, and they're each off of one of the sons. Do you see it? Do you see the land of Joseph? If you do, then I'm going to have to send you to the eye doctor, because there ain't no land of Joseph here. So it's not there. Instead, the two grandsons, they're the ones that get names and get the blessings of territory. Very interesting. It's most significant because they're not really part of the family. They're, he goes on to bless them. He actually puts his right hand, which is kind of like the better blessing, got the left hand blessing, got the right hand blessing. They get the right hand blessing, and he places it on Ephraim's head, and Joseph thinks it's a mix-up, and he's actually, jo Jacob is blessing the younger son. That's another thing that you don't do. Why would you bless the younger son? He's totally stepping outside of cultural expectation here. You know what this is? This is a glimpse of Christ. This is a glimpse of Christ in Jacob. God's ultimate dream that was going to take place to say there are no outsiders to God's family in the gospel. There are no outsiders. And maybe, maybe you walked in here today or tuning in online and you felt like an outsider to the church or Christianity. Well, I have news for you. That is not biblical. That does not come from scripture. That does not come from God at all. It's part of God's character always to be for the outsider. Not about the self. See, folks, happiness is not the end goal. It's a byproduct of a productive and filled life that's focused on others. It's generous, compassionate, righteous. Because at some point in our lives, we realize it's never really about us. Your dreams, our dreams always affect others. Or they should, right? Our decisions, of course, always affect others.
It's amazing how powerful an influence you and I have on other people. And especially, I would say this if you have some connection to children. So, so powerful. There's a man named Brian Stevenson. You might be familiar with him. Um, He's the the writer um, of the book Just Mercy, but he also lived it. If you have not seen the movie version, I highly, highly recommend you do that. He was a, um, a graduate of, uh, I believe it's Harvard Law School, and he went down to rural Alabama after his graduation to serve people there who uh, were basically being thrown in prison for their skin color and never considered um, to be released from that. And so it was a major landmark Supreme Court case um, as he was working there. But it's interesting, his story. He tells about how he's a, he was a number, one of a number of sons in his family. And he talks about this grandmother in his life. You know, the grandmother. The grandmother who, who t- once took him aside and said, Brian, I have to tell you something. Out of all the kids, you're special. You're special. And I want you to promise me three things, Brian. I want you to promise me three things. I want you to promise me you'll love your mama. You'll love your mama, right? Always very, very important. You'll do the right thing when it is super hard. You'll do the right thing. And you'll never drink. You promised me those three things. And he was about like seven, six, seven years old at the time. And he said, yeah, grandma, yeah, of course I'll do that. I promise you, I promise you. Well, years later, he was out in the yard Um, in a field somewhere and his older brothers were there and somebody had acquired some alcohol and they were like playing around and drinking and he, Brian, he was maybe about 10 or 11 at this point, he refused to drink and his brother looked at him and laughed at him and he said, his brother told him, are you still hung up on grandma's conversation with you? And he like looked at him, he's like, no, what? He's like, come on now, he told Brian. He said, grandma told every single one of us that we were special. But what was interesting is that Brian's story, when he tells it, he says, I'm 62 years old and I still haven't had a drop of alcohol in my life. And he said, and I'm 62 years old and I still took her words to heart to do the right thing even when it was hard, even when people threatened to kill me for standing up for people. It's interesting, right? It's interesting how one conversation can have such an influence on someone's life for their entire life. A story that looks outside of ourselves is so much bigger, right? Because, because it, it's amazing how there's such power in our identity and there's such influence when our lives go like this and rub against each other and when someone actually says they believe in you and they see something in you. But the last thing that I think Jacob's legacy shows is that it's also important to have a story of undeserved grace. Undeserved grace. Because that's what Jacob lived. Jacob's name, if you didn't know, means trickster. He wrestled with God. He was literally physically broken at the hip. But, but he had an ends justify the means kind of mentality his entire life. But God grew him as a person and he saw that. And so before he passes, he gives a blessing to his sons He gives a blessing to each one, and kind of in that, there's a dream there, there's kind of a vision there. I encourage you, we're not going to read that whole piece in chapter 49, but one he reaches is his son Judah, and we talked about Judah last week, about what a loser he was, what a jerk he was. He was the one that told his brothers to throw um, Joseph into the 
into the cistern and then sell him to slavery. Well, this is what Jacob says to Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. A story of grace. Jacob experienced it in his life, and he sees it, and he blesses it to Judah, because Judah it was the jerk, right? He was the one who had, had actually lied to Jacob about Joseph and said that a wild animal had killed him. But what had happened here is... God. God is who, what had happened. That, that Judah is blessed by his father. And I think this is, once again, a foreboding, a foretaste of what God is doing here to say that nobody is out of God's reach. Even the jerk-faced Judah, right? If he can be blessed, maybe you could be blessed. Maybe, maybe I could be blessed. See, grace is a powerful thing. See, the, the religions of the world all of them, except Christianity, all of them emphasize that works create goodness. All of them emphasize that you have to do this and this and this and this in order to, to be right, in order to be good with God. But following Christ emphasizes that God creates the one who has created goodness. Only God is good, and it's through his grace. And if we haven't received his grace, then, then that's, that, that's an important thing because that's how we convey grace. Those who follow Christ, that should make us stand out because you don't get anything back when you extend grace. And I think, I think Jacob had learned this. I think at the end of his life, we see that he had learned this over those years and he wanted to pass things, these on to his sons to say, leave a legacy, leave a story that matters. Because then we're told in verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Well, Jacob gives final instructions to his sons for his burial and for what they should do proceeding, and then he passes. But he doesn't pass alone because he leaves something behind. He leaves a legacy. He leaves a legacy that would be carried on by his sons, and no, they wouldn't do it right. They would mess up we see in the preceding chapters and, and stories onward. But what do you want your legacy to be? What, what will that be? Let that determine what you do with your dream. What, what story will you leave behind? Because we're all writing one. The events of today will turn into the story of tomorrow. But I, I want to take a little diversion here and, and ask that question, not just for us personally, but for us as a church. And um, you'll see this kind of listed in your notes. Uh, what does this look like for us here at Table Life Church to start dreaming again? What story do we desire to tell at Table Life Church? And if you're new here or listening in or whatever, you know, I, I invite you to, to, to stay and, and to hear these things because I think it it's also applies to you and intrigues. Well, the first thing is that we would be a church that is not known as a location but as a people. Wouldn't that be amazing to be known not as a location but as a people? Because if you go around our community right now and you tell people, oh, I go to Table Life Church, what do they usually ask? Oh, isn't that the one on 16th and Brant, right? 
That's the, the, the a, that built, oh yeah, it's like the A-frame thing. Wasn't that, the, they always say, wasn't that the Nazarene church before? Well, I have news that we're still Nazarene. We just don't have it um, broadcast out there. But, but we're usually known as a where rather than a who. What if we were known instead as a people who love people? As a people. As a people who welcome and don't judge. As a people who love people and meet them where they are as people who care about people that are in the community that are without hope or are struggling or are in recovery, to be known as a, as a people rather as a location, that we are transformed by Christ, that we would be different people, we'd be transformed, that, that the person that, that you and I are right now would be different 10 years from now in a good way, more looking like Jesus. But also, I think it's a dream that we would be a church whose outward appearance reflects our inward personality. And um, I'm not going to make a big deal of this, but I, this isn't my words. It's actually one of our new members' words. Um, and so I'm not claiming that I came up with that, but I think it's, it's totally dead on. It's a church whose outward appearance is like our little snow scene that we have with Mr. Mr. Snowman, Snowman out front before his head got knocked off. Um, but that our outward appearance would reflect our inward personality, right? The church building versus the people, the people, you and I. And, and so over the, the next year and years, we're gonna have some updates to our worship space, um, some changes that would bring some light and life that uh, would really reflect who we are as a congregation. To, to people that experience, maybe for the first time, to people that are online, that, that your experience, you know, you're just as engaged with us as, uh, in, in worship just as those who are present here. Um, and also even our, our outside, right? Our building and our, our property here is a resource, a resource to be used and utilized for people in the community. And that means outside too. We have banners and signs of life and decor, clear signage so you know where to go, right? It reflects our inward personality in a way that's welcome. Our core hospitality is a part of our DNA here. But also, most importantly, that we would be a church whose discipleship is intentional, relational, and reproducible. We're going to focus on table groups and discipleship class as a means to grow. A lot of times in churches, discipleship, which is kind of the way of learning and following Jesus, that's part of our mission statement to learn the way of Jesus, is it kind of happens haphazardly. It's kind of like, okay, well, I hope that you grow. I hope that you change. I hope that you come to worship and that, like, you get something out of it. But what if we were intentional about that? You know, if you would say, I'm new to this, and I don't really know the Bible, and I'm kind of new to faith, or I've kind of been stagnant in my faith. I've been here 10, 15 years, and I'm kind of like the same place. Well, we want to help you grow in that. And, and to include children and youth in that, too, because I believe they're not just the church of the upcoming generation. They're the church of this generation, and so we need to invest in kids and in, in our youth and our teenagers. But I think, last of all, this is, you've heard me communicate this in the last couple of weeks, is that we would, known, we would be known as a church who takes, takes risks for Jesus. We would be known as a church who takes risks for Jesus. That we're not afraid to fail. That we would even celebrate failure because it means that we tried. And we would choose risk and sacrifice over comfort and steadiness. And so that's just a little glimpse, and we'll talk about these more in the future, but just a glimpse of the story that, that I believe God is calling Table Life Church to tell in this next year. 
that we would be a part of this journey together to see what God would do because for you and I, and I think for us as a church, the most powerful legacy is gonna be the story we leave behind. And if you haven't had a good one up to this point, I wanna encourage you because you're in a chapter right now and a chapter is just that. It's a chapter, it's not the whole story. And when what we're in becomes nothing more than a story to tell, I think it's a good question to ask ourselves, what kind of story do we want it to be? My hope and prayer is that it's a good one, a one that brings glory to God.